Chapter forty seven of the Lamplighter. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Bridget Gage. The Lamplighter by Maria Susanna Cummins. Chapter forty seven. Do not spurn me in my prayer for this wandering ever longer, ever more. Hath overworn me, and I know not on what shore I may rest from my despair. E. B. Browning. Captain Gray died. We were within a week's sail of our destination when he was taken ill, and three days before we were safely anchored in the harbor of Rio, he breathed his last. I shared with Lucy the office of ministering to the suffering man, closed his eyes at last, and carried the fainting girl in my arms to another part of the vessel. With kind words and persuasions, I restored her to her senses, and then, as the full consciousness of her desolation rushed upon her, she sunk at once into a state of hopeless despondency, more painful to witness than her previous condition of utter insensibility. Captain Gray had made no provision for his daughter. Indeed, it would have been impossible for him to do so, as the state of his affairs afterwards proved. Well might the poor girl lament her sad fate, for she was without a relative in the world, penniless, and approaching a strange shore, which afforded no refuge to the orphan. We buried her father in the sea, and, that sad office fulfilled, I sought Lucy, and endeavored, as I had several times tried to do without success, to arouse her to a sense of her situation, and advise with her concerning the future. For we were now so near our port, that in a few hours we might be compelled to leave the vessel, and seek quarters in the city. She listened to me without replying. At length I hinted at the necessity of my leaving her, and begged to know if she had any plans for the future. She answered me only by a burst of tears. I expressed the deepest sympathy for her grief, and begged her not to weep. And then, with many sobs, and interrupting herself by frequent outbreaks and exclamations of vehement sorrow, she threw herself upon my compassion, and with unaffected simplicity and childlike artlessness, entreated me not to leave, or, as she termed it, to desert her. She reminded me that she was all alone in the world, that the moment she stepped foot on shore she should be in a land of strangers, and, appealing to my mercy, besought me not to forsake and leave her to die alone. What could I do? I had nothing on earth to live for. We were both alike orphaned and desolate. There was but one point of difference. I could work and protect her. She could do neither for herself. It would be something for me to live for. And for her, though but a refuge of poverty and want, it was better than the exposure and suffering that must otherwise await her. I told her plainly how little I had to offer, that my heart even was crushed and broken, but that I was ready to labor in her behalf, to guard her from danger, to pity, and perhaps in time learn to love her. The unsophisticated girl had never thought of marriage. She had sought the protection of a friend, not a husband, but I explained to her that the latter tie only would obviate the necessity of our parting and in the humility of sorrow she finally accepted my unflattering offer. The only confidant to our sudden engagement, the only witness of the marriage, which within a few hours ensued, was a veteran mariner, an old weather-beaten sailor, who had known and loved Lucy from her childhood, and whose name will be, perhaps, familiar to you, Ben Grant. He accompanied us on shore, and to the church, which was our first destination, he followed us to the humble lodgings with which we contrived for the present to be contented, and devoted himself to Lucy, with self-sacrificing, but in one instance, alas, as you will soon learn, with mistaken and fatal zeal. 
After much difficulty, I obtained employment from a man in whom I accidentally recognized an old and valued friend of my father. He had been in Rio several years, was actively engaged in trade, and willingly employed me as clerk, occasionally dispatching me from home to transact business at a distance. My duties, being regular and profitable, we were soon not only raised above want, but I was enabled to place my young wife in a situation that ensured comfort, if not luxury. The sweetness of her disposition, the cheerfulness with which she endured privation, the earnestness with which she strove to make me happy, were not without effect. I perseveringly rallied from my gloom. I succeeded in banishing the frown from my brow, and the premature wrinkles, which her little hand would softly sweep away, finally ceased to return. The few months that I passed with your mother, Gertrude, form a sweet episode in the memory of my stormy life. I came to love her much, not as I loved Emily, that could not be expected, but as the solitary flower that bloomed on the grave of all my early hopes. She cast a fragrance round my path, and her child is not more dear to me because a part of myself than as the memento of the cherished blossom, snatched hastily from my hand and rudely crushed. About two months after your birth, my child, and before your eyes had ever learned to brighten at the sight of your father, who was necessarily much from home, the business in which I was engaged called me, in the capacity of an agent, to a station at some distance from Rio. I had been absent nearly a month, and had extended my journey beyond my original intentions, and had written regularly to Lucy, informing her of all my movements, though I have since believed that the letters never reached her when the neighborhood in which I was stationed became infected with a fatal malaria. For the sake of my family, I took every measure to ward off contagion, but failed. I was seized with the terrible fever, and lay for weeks at the point of death. I was cruelly neglected during my illness, for I had no friends near me, and my slender purse held out little inducement for mercenary service. But my sufferings and forebodings on account of Lucy and yourself were far greater than any which I endured for my bodily torments though the latter were great indeed. I conjured up every fear that the imagination could conceive. But nothing, alas, which could compare with the reality that awaited me, when, after an almost interminable illness, I made my way, destitute, ragged, and emaciated, back to Rio. I sought my former home. It was deserted, and I was born to flee from its vicinity, as the fearful disease of which I had already been the prey had nearly depopulated that and the neighboring streets. I made every inquiry, but could obtain no intelligence of my wife and child. I hastened to the horrible charnel-house, where, during the raging of the pestilence, the unrecognized dead were exposed. But among the disfigured and moldering remains, it was impossible to distinguish friends from strangers. I lingered about the city for weeks, in hopes to gain some information concerning Lucy, but could find no one who had ever heard of her. All day I wandered about the streets and on the wharves, the latter being places which Ben Grant, in whose faithful charge I had left your mother and yourself, was in the habit of frequenting, but not a syllable could I learn of any persons that answered my description. My first thought had been that they would naturally seek my employer, to learn, if possible, the cause of my prolonged absence, and on finding my home empty I had hastened in search of him. But he, too, had, within a recent period, fallen a victim to the prevailing distemper. His place of business was closed, and the establishment broken up. I prolonged my search, and continued my inquiries, until hope died within me. I was assured that scarce an inmate of the fatal neighborhood where I had left my family had escaped the withering blast. 
and convinced, finally, that my fate was still pursuing me with an unmitigated wrath, of which this last blow was but a single expression, that I might have foreseen and expected, I madly agreed to work my passage in the first vessel which promised me an escape from scenes so fraught with harrowing recollections. And now commenced in truth that course of wretched wandering, which, knowing neither pause nor cessation, has made up the sum of my existence. With varied ends in view, following strongly contrasted employments, and with fluctuating fortune, I have travelled over the world. My feet have trodden almost every land, I have sailed upon every sea, and breathed the air of every clime. I am familiar with the city and the wilderness, the civilized man and the savage. I have learned the sad lesson that peace is nowhere, and friendship for the most part but a name. If I have taught myself to hate, shun, and despise humanity, it is because I know it well. Once, during my wanderings, I visited the home of my boyhood. Unseen and unknown, I trod familiar ground, and gazed on familiar, though time-worn faces. I stood at the window of Mr. Graham's library, saw the contented, happy countenance of Emily, happy in her blindness and her forgetfulness of the past. A young girl sat near the fire, endeavoring to read by its flickering light. I knew not then what gave such a charm to her thoughtful features, nor why my eyes dwelt upon them with a rare pleasure. For there was no voice to proclaim to the father's heart that he looked on the face of his child. I am not sure that the strong impulse which prompted me then to enter, acknowledge my identity, and beg Emily to speak to me a word of forgiveness, might not have prevailed over the dread of her displeasure. But Mr. Graham at the moment made his appearance, cold and implacable as ever. I looked upon him an instant, then fled from the house, and the next day departed for other lands. Although, in the various labors which I was compelled to undertake, to earn for myself a decent maintenance, I had more than once met with such success as to give me temporary independence, and enable me to indulge myself in expensive travelling. I had never amassed a fortune. Indeed, I had not cared to do so, since I had no use for money, except to employ it in the gratification of my immediate wants. Accident, however, at last thrust upon me a wealth which I could scarcely be said to have sought. After a year spent in the wilderness of the West, amid adventures the relation of which would seem to you almost incredible, I gradually continued my retreat across the country, and after encountering innumerable hardships in a solitary journey, which had in it no other object than the indulgence of my vagrant habits, I found myself in that land which has recently been termed the land of promise, but which has proved to many a greedy emigrant a land of falsehood and deceit. For me, however, who sought it not, it showered gold. I was among the earliest discoverers of its treasure vaults, one of the most successful, though the least laborious of the seekers after gain. Nor was it merely, or indeed chiefly, at the mines that fortune favored me. With the first results of my labors, I chanced to purchase an immense tract of land, little dreaming at the time that those desert acres were destined to become the streets and squares of a great and prosperous city. So it was, however, and without effort, almost without my knowledge, I achieved the greatness which springs from untold wealth. But this was not all. The blessed accident which led me to this golden land was the means of disclosing a pearl of price, a treasure in comparison with which California and all its mines shrink to my mind into insignificance. You know how the war-cry went forth to all lands, and men of every name and nation brought their arms to the field of fortune. Famine came next, with disease and death in its train, and many a man, 
hurrying on to reap the golden harvest, fell by the wayside, without once seeing the waving of the yellow grain. Half scorning the greedy rabble, I could not refuse, in this my time of prosperity, to minister to the wants of such as fell in my way, and now for once my humanity found its own reward. A miserable, ragged, half-starved, and apparently dying man crept to the door of my tent, for these were the primitive days, when that land afforded no better habitation, and asked in a feeble voice for charity. I did not refuse to admit him into my narrow domicile, and to the extent of my ability relieve his suffering condition. He proved to be the victim of want rather than disease, and, his hunger appeased, the savage brutality of his coarse nature soon manifested itself in the dogged indifference with which he received a stranger's bounty, and the gross ingratitude with which he abused my hospitality. A few days sufficed to restore him to his full strength, and then, anxious to dismiss my visitor, whose conduct had already excited suspicions of his good faith, I gave him warning that he must depart at the same time placing in his hands a sufficient amount of gold to ensure his support until he could reach the mines, which were his professed destination. He appeared dissatisfied, and begged permission to remain until the next morning, as the night was near, and he had no shelter provided. To this I made no objection, little imagining how base a serpent I was harboring. At midnight I was awakened from my light and easily disturbed sleep, to find my lodger busily engaged in rifling my property, and preparing to take an unceremonious leave of my dwelling. Nor did his villainy end here. Upon my seizing and charging him with the theft, he snatched a weapon which lay near at hand, and attempted the life of his benefactor. I was prepared, however, to ward off the stroke, and by means of my superior strength, succeeded in a few moments in subduing and mastering my desperate antagonist. He now crouched at my feet, in such abject and mean submission, as might have been expected from so contemptible a knave. Well might he tremble with fear, for the lynch law was then in full force, and summary in its execution of justice upon criminals like him. I should probably have handed the traitor over to his fate. But ere I had time to do so, he by chance held out to my cupidity a bribe so tempting that I forgot the deserving of my knavish guest in the eagerness with which I bartered his freedom as the price of its possession. He freely emptied his pockets at my bidding, and restored to me the gold, for the loss of which I never should have repined. As the base metal rolled at my feet, however, there glittered among the coins a jewel as truly mine as any of the rest, but which, as it met my sight, filled me with greater surprise and rapture than if it had been a new-fallen star." It was a ring of peculiar design and workmanship, which had once been the property of my father, and after his death had been worn by my mother until the time of her marriage with Mr. Graham, when it was transferred to myself. I had ever prized it as a precious heirloom, and it was one of the few valuables which I took with me when I fled from my stepfather's house. The ring, with a watch and some other trinkets, had been left in the possession of Lucy when I parted with her at Rio and the sight of it once more seemed to me like a voice from the grave. I eagerly sought to learn from my prisoner the source whence it had been obtained, but he maintained an obstinate silence. It was now my turn to plead, and at length the promise of instant permission to depart, unwhipped by justice, at the conclusion of his tale, wrung from him a secret fraught to me with vital interest. What I learned from him, in disjointed and often incoherent phrases, I will relate to you in few words. This man was Stephen Grant, the son of my old friend Ben. 
He had heard from his father's lips the story of your mother's misfortunes, and the circumstance of a violent quarrel, which arose between Ben and his vixen wife, at the young stranger's introduction to their household, impressed the tale upon his recollection. From his account, it appeared that my long-continued absence from Lucy, during the time of my illness, was construed by her honest but distrustful counsellor and friend, into voluntary and cruel desertion. The poor girl, to whom my early life was all a mystery which she had never shared, and to whom much of my character and conduct was consequently inexplicable, began soon to feel convinced of the correctness of the old sailor's suspicions and fears. She had already applied to my employer for information concerning me, but he, who had heard of the pestilence to which I was exposed, and fully believed me to be among the dead, forbore to distress her by communication of his belief, and replied to her questionings with an obscurity which served to give new force to her hitherto vague and uncertain surmises. She positively refused, however, to leave our home, and clinging to the hope of my final return thither, remained where I had left her, until the terrible fever began its ravages. Her small stock of money was by this time consumed. Her strength both of mind and body gave way. And Ben, becoming every day more confident that the simple-hearted Lucy had been betrayed and forsaken, persuaded her at last to sell her fortune, and with the sum thus raised flee the infected country before it should be too late. She sailed for Boston in the same vessel in which Ben shipped before the mast, and on reaching that port her humble protector took her immediately to the only home he had to offer. There your mother's sad fate found a mournful termination, and you, her infant child, were left to the mercy of the cruel woman, who, but for her consciousness of guilt and her fear of its betrayal, would doubtless have thrust you at once from the miserable shelter her dwelling afforded. This guilt consisted in a foul robbery committed by Nan, and her already infamous son, upon your innocent and hapless mother." now rendered, through her feebleness, an easy prey to their rapacity. The fruits of this vile theft, however, were never participated in by Nan, whose promising son so far exceeded her in duplicity and craft, that having obtained possession of the jewels for the alleged purpose of bartering them away, he reserved such as he thought proper, and appropriated to his own use the proceeds of the remainder. The antique ring, which I now hold in my possession, the priceless relic of a mournful tragedy, would have shared the fate of the rest, but for its apparent worthlessness. To the luckless Stephen, however, it proved at last a temporary salvation from the felon's doom, which must finally await that hardened sinner. And to me, ah, to me, it remains to be proved whether the knowledge of the secrets to which it has been the key will bless my future life, or darken it with a heavier curse. Notwithstanding the information thus gained, and the exciting idea to which it gave rise, that my child might be still living, and finally restored to me, I could not yet feel any security that these daring hopes were not destined to be crushed in their infancy, and that my newly found treasure might not again elude my eager search. To my inquiries concerning you, Gertrude, Stephen, who had no longer any motives for concealing the truth, declared his inability to acquaint me with any particulars of a later period than the time of your residence with Truman Flint. He knew that the lamplighter had taken you to his home, and was accidentally made aware, a few months later, of your continuance in that place of refuge, from the old man's being, to use my informant's expression, such a confounded fool as to call upon his mother and voluntarily make compensation for injury done to her windows in your outburst of childish revenge. Further than this I could learn nothing, 
but it was enough to inspire all my energies, and fill me with one desire only, the recovery of my child. I hastened to Boston, had no difficulty in tracing your benefactor, and though he had been long since dead, found many a truthful witness to his well-known virtues. Nor, when I asked for his adopted child, did I find her forgotten in the quarter of the city where she had passed her childhood. More than one grateful voice was ready to respond to my questioning, and to proclaim the cause they had to remember the girl, who, having experienced the trials of poverty, made it both the duty and the pleasure of her prosperity to administer to the wants of a neighborhood whose sufferings she had aforetime both witnessed and shared. But, alas, to complete the sum of sad vicissitudes, with which my unhappy destiny was already crowded, at the very moment when I was assured of my daughter's safety, and my ears were drinking in the sweet praises that accompanied the mention of her name, there fell upon me, like a thunderbolt, the startling words, She is now the adopted child of sweet Emily Graham, the blind girl. Oh, strange coincidence! Oh, righteous retribution! which at the very moment when I was picturing to myself the consummation of my cherished hopes, crushed me once more beneath the iron hand of a destiny that would not be cheated of its victim. My child, my only child, bound by the gratitude and love of years to one in whose face I scarcely dared to look, lest my soul should be withered by the expression of condemnation which the consciousness of my presence would inspire. The seas and lands, which had hitherto divided us, seemed not to my tortured fancy so insurmountable a barrier between myself and my long-lost daughter, as the dreadful reflection that the only earthly being whose love I had hoped in time to win had been reared from her infancy in a household where my very name was a thing abhorred. Stung to the quick by the harrowing thought that all my prayers, entreaties, and explanations could never undo her early impressions— and that all my labors and all my love could never call forth other than a cold and formal recognition of my claims, or were still a feigned and hypocritical pretense of filial affection. I half resolved to leave my child in ignorance of her birth, and never seek to look upon her face, rather than subject her to the terrible necessity of choosing between the friend whom she loved, and the father from whose crimes she had learned to shrink with horror and dread. After wrestling and struggling long with contending and warring emotions, I resolved to make one endeavor to see and recognize you, Gertrude, and at the same time guard myself from discovery. I trusted, and as it proved, not without reason, to the immense change which time had wrought in my appearance, to conceal me effectually from all eyes but those which had known me intimately, and therefore approached Mr. Graham's house without the slightest fear of betrayal. I found it empty, and apparently deserted. I now directed my steps to the well-remembered counting-room, and here learned from a clerk, who was as it proved, but ill-informed concerning the movements of his master's family, that the whole household, including yourself, had been passing the winter in Paris, and were at present at a German watering-place. Without hesitation, or further inquiry, I took the steamer to Liverpool, and from thence hastened to Baden-Baden, a trifling excursion in the eyes of a traveller of my experience." Without risking myself in the presence of my stepfather, I took an early opportunity to obtain an introduction to Mrs. Graham, and thanks to her unreserved conversation, made myself master of the fact that Emily and yourself were left in Boston, and were at that time under the care of Dr. Jeremy. It was on my return voyage, which was immediately undertaken, that I made the acquaintance of Dr. Grisworth and his daughter, an acquaintance which accidentally proved of great value in facilitating my intercourse with yourself. 
Once more in Boston, Dr. Jeremy's house also wore a desolate appearance, and looked as if closed for the season. There was a man, however, making some repairs about the doorstep, who informed me that the family were absent from town. He was not himself aware of the direction they had taken, but the servants were at home, and could, no doubt, acquaint me with their route. Upon this, I boldly rung the doorbell. It was answered by Mrs. Ellis, the woman who, nearly twenty years before, had cruelly and unpityingly sounded in my ears the death knell of all my hopes in life. I saw at once that my incognito was secure, as she met my keen and piercing glance without quailing, shrinking, or taking flight, as I fully expected she would do at the sight of the ghost of my former self. She replied to my queries as coolly and collectedly as she had probably done during the day to some dozen of the doctor's disappointed patients, telling me that he had left that very morning for New York, and would not be back for two or three weeks. Nothing could have been more favorable to my wishes than the chance thus afforded of overtaking your party, and in the character of a traveling companion, introduced myself gradually to your notice. You know how this purpose was effected. How, now in the rear, and now in advance, I nevertheless maintained a constant proximity to your footsteps. To add one particle to the comfort of yourself and Emily, to learn your plans, forestall your wishes, secure to your use the best of rooms, and bribe to your service the most devoted of attendants, I spared myself neither pains, fatigue, trouble, nor expense. For much of the freedom with which I approached you, and made myself an occasional member of your circle, I was indebted to Emily's blindness for I could not doubt that otherwise time and its changes would fail to conceal from her my identity, and I should meet with a premature recognition. Nor, until the final act of the drama, when death stared us all in the face, and concealment became impossible, did I once trust my voice to her hearing. How closely, during those few weeks, I watched and weighed your every word and action, seeking even to read your thoughts in your face. None can tell whose acuteness is not sharpened and vivified by motives so all-engrossing as mine, and who can measure the anguish of the found father, who day by day, learning to worship his child with a more absorbing idolatry, and yet not dared to clasp her to his heart. Especially when I saw you the victim of grief and trouble, did I long to assert a claim to your confidence, and more than once my self-control would have given way, but for the dread inspired by the gentle Emily, gentle to all but me. I could not brook the thought that with my confession I should cease to be the trusted friend, and become the abhorred parent. I preferred to maintain my distant and unacknowledged guardianship of my child, rather than that she should behold in me the dreaded tyrant who might tear her from the home from which he had himself been driven, and the hearts which, though warm with love for her, were ice and stone to him. And so I kept silent, and sometimes present to your sight, but still oftener hid from view. I hovered around your path, until that dreadful day, which you will long remember, when everything forgotten but the safety of yourself and Emily, my heart spoke out, and betrayed my secret. And now you know all, my follies, misfortunes, sufferings, and sins. Can you love me, Gertrude? It is all I ask. I seek not to steal you from your present home, to rob poor Emily of a child whom she values perhaps as much as I. The only balm my wounded spirit seeks is the simple, guileless confession that you will at last try to love your father. I have no hope in this world, and none, alas, beyond, but in yourself. Could you feel my heart now beating against its prison bars, you would realize, as I do, that unless soothed it will burst ere long. Will you soothe it by your pity, my sweet, my darling child? Will you bless it by your love? 
If so, come clasp your arms around me, and whisper to me words of peace. Within sight of your window, in the old summer-house at the end of the garden, with straining ear, I wait listening for your footsteps. End of chapter 47